Hello, welcome to Performance Cycling Podcast, episode 11. I'm here with Todd Norwood. I'm Jason. All right, so I guess I'm up first with my hot take uh, today. So just recently, um, I think at least my favorite cyclist of the moment, uh, Vanderpool, announced that he's going to be going for the title, presumably at Road Worlds this year, rather than Mountain Bike Worlds. So a little speculation around which way he might lean. Um, personally, I'm a little bit disappointed. He performed quite well last year at Mountain Bike Worlds, but I think from a, a career standpoint, from a visibility standpoint, um, you know, and at, at the end of the day, if you if you want to be the best cyclist in the world, probably racing Road Worlds is the the right decision. So I think I'm I'm excited to see how that plays out. I'm excited to see how that decision plays out. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's fantastic this spring. You know, obviously taking the Cyclocross World Championship, you know, over the winter, and then his performance on the road this season was unreal. And then to go and, and take a mountain bike world cup, you know, like all in this short span of a couple months, absolutely amazing. So, um, I, as disappointed as I am as a, a mountain biker at heart to see him skip mountain bike worlds, um, I'm excited to see, you know, what he can do on the road at the, at the highest level. Yeah. I think it's interesting that he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he gives as much opinion as other riders. It's so easy to find out what, Peter Sagan's thinking what you know Van Avermaet's thinking but it seems like Vanderpool likes to sit under the radar a bit more uh, so this is a pretty big announcement for him I'm excited I think uh, you know of course everybody knows Amstel Gold was one of the most amazing last five minutes ever uh, but uh, I think that it just depends on what he, what he wants like it, it's clear that road's important to him and it's so interesting that cyclocross riders can come in and make an influence in road right away it just speaks a lot to what it takes to be a cyclocross rider and also the the things that you train and what you get good at as a cyclocross rider translate really well yeah. to other just like not just road but mountain absolutely as well. it's amazing to me right because you think you look at a cyclocross race say, okay it's an hour uh, and then to see him compete in these classics and these really long yeah. races right I, I see the translation to a mountain bike race not just being off road but the in the duration on you know world cup mountain bike race is usually around 90 minutes and you have people like cadell evans who went between mountain and road which you know, you can see it. it it's there's a mm -hmm. history of it. Absolutely. And then, you know, I think originally what I was most surprised with this cyclocross thing is uh, Van Aert uh, yep. when he did uh, Strada Bianchi, and that I think was just about a four-hour race. Um, I even thought that like a one-hour race to a four-hour race to me was impressive. And then to see Vanderpool uh, pull that kind of stuff off in six or six and a half-hour races, it's like. Uh, I think maybe they train, they must train for five or six hours at a time sure, for cyclocross, sure. and that's likely to get that base, that aerobic base they need. Um, but maybe it just didn't click until uh, until I saw it in person. But uh, yeah, they're awesome to watch, and maybe we'll see a little bit more of, uh, you know, Peter Sagan had a period where he was like, look, I can do this cool thing with my bike, like jumping curbs to mm -hmm. get an advantage, stuff like that. I'd like to see more of, uh, more of that kind of stuff from Vanderpool. I know he had that one. Did you see the crash that he had where he like basically broke his front wheel? Uh, He's, yeah, that's... I mean, it was awesome and it was really cool to see him crash well. Yes. Uh, yes. I don't know if we mentioned that's that already, but I mean, we've talked about this, right? They're like yeah. crashing, crashing well or, or knowing how to, you know, minimize, <laughs> minimize the damage that occurs during a crash is actually yeah. probably a, an underappreciated skill. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he's a hot rider. I like that. I like what he does. I like watching him. I think that's true for a lot of people. So regardless of what he chooses, I mean, I think people are going to want to watch him. Yeah, no, so. I think he's he's a fun rider to watch. I think 
sort of in the same way of Sagan, right? Like he, he wants to make the race, right? He, he's yeah. out there. And I think Vanderpool sort of has that same feeling about it. He's yeah, like, he's also a bit immature, I'd say, though, because he, he, you know, he can pull off wins in big races, but also sometimes he kind of has like silly attacks. A little, mm-hmm. you know, two hours from the end of the race, it's like, okay, people have done 50K breakaways, but not 80K breakaways. Like, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you, you see him and you're like, I don't know if that's the right tactical decision. And he pulls it off anyway. And you're like, okay, whatever. Uh, right. you it's, know, you're a yeah. freak. <laughs> it, it must be right because you made it right. Yeah. yeah. you know, like, My common sense says that's wrong. But. So if he, you know, if he loses the race, all the commentators say, oh, it's such a bad decision. And then he wins the race. Oh, brilliant decision. Right. Fantastic. You know? How did he, how did he come up with that? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's the hot take. That's a good one. I think uh, onto the main topics, I'm going to be talking about hydration a little bit and that's spurred so, on by so the, uh, so appropriate since I'm sweating right now in my garage. Yeah, we have um, a heat wave coming through Northern California, and well, I mean, I don't look at the weather elsewhere, but I assume it's hot uh, in other places. Indeed, but uh, I'd say atypical for us, right? Because our the fog that we typically have to cool it off hasn't rolled in the last couple of days. So yep, it's... and uh, unfortunately, we're in the space where most. Um, older houses don't have AC, so there's a large population that's sort of stuck in, in hot homes for the yep. next few days. And I think that hydration uh, is important for everyone, but I also think that athletes specifically, and especially if you're trying to get good training in, in a hot spell or even just day-to-day training, uh, knowing your hydration status, uh, maximizing it for performance is really important. So I have my notes here. Um, so first I want to talk about, uh, recommendations from, you know, this is from a a diet for athletes book. Um, it's actually from Chris Carmichael's book, who was the coach of Lance Armstrong. And you can have your opinions on Lance Armstrong, but I think that not just was he really good at taking drugs. He was also really good at, um, maximizing other areas of his athletic performance. And he, the U.S. Postal Team did a lot of work to maximize all areas, and so for this coach to publish a book on nutrition and hydration is it was cutting edge stuff at the time, and mm-hmm. um, it's a good base for us to get started. So uh, the first thing he says is, you know, a normal human needs seventy to one hundred ounces of water for normal bodily function per day. Mm-hmm. So that's um, like half a gallon, a little more than half a gallon, to not quite a gallon, right? Yeah. So like. I mean, six glasses, you know, this typical, like a beer glass. A pint glass. Yeah. Um, so six, six glasses of water, five glasses of water. And uh, one thing to notice, that's not just, you know, liquid water that like consumed water from your faucet. That's also water in your food, mm-hmm. water in the soda that you shouldn't be drinking. Uh, anything, you know, there's a lot of ways to consume water throughout your day. And, you know, if you have a popsicle, you just had some water. If you had iceberg lettuce, you mostly had water and a little fiber, right? Yeah. So um, most people hit this kind of by accident, um, and our bodies are are actually pretty good at absorbing water from a variety of sources. Um, But for cyclists, um, Chris Carmichael recommends a gallon. So I was introduced to this initially when I, um, I went to track nationals, collegiate track nationals, and one of the sprinters was carrying a gallon jug with her all around and you know, what are you doing with that thing? And she was like, well, now you know how much water you drank and this better be empty by the end of the day. Uh, and so that's, I think I have recently purchased a reusable gallon jug, uh, with the same goal of, I fill it up the night before, put it in the fridge and then it better be empty by the end of the day. 
Um, and if you don't want to pee all night, you need to finish it before, you know, 10 p.m., two hours before your bedtime, whatever that is for you. Um, so I would say that this gallon, some people call it the gallon challenge. Um, I think that it's a good idea and it's something that you should strive for as an athlete. So just, you know, water is one thing, but then also there's this electrolytes, right, that we need to help balance. Oh, I'm sure you're going there. Yeah. Uh, right. Cause just like a, a straight gallon of water, you know, too much water is a bad thing uh, yep. at the end of the day. So I think that on the topic of, um, sodium electrolytes, the, the whole point of hydration is you want to keep your blood volume up. So as your blood volume reduces, it's harder for you to cool yourself. It's harder for your, you to get oxygen to the right places because your blood gets thicker and, uh, you can't pump it as easily. Your heart has to work harder. So the whole point is you want to consume something that allows your body to maintain blood volume, but it's, it, it won't just take in water because your body's really particular about the proportions of electrolytes in your blood. So it needs to be a certain amount salty. It needs to be a certain amount. Uh, I don't have other like potassiumized, um, potassium, magnesium, calcium, right? There's all these minerals, right. That we consume in, in our foods, but also we can put into, <clears throat> into fluid. Yep. And, uh, you know, you, you have your blood tests that you take, um, with your doctor, you know, when you get your physical and, and they have ranges for the, um, levels of these minerals in your blood. And once you get outside of the range, they could be an indication of a health problem, but also maybe you just aren't giving your body enough of these, um, minerals. And one way that your body reacts is it has trouble storing water. If for example, you don't have enough sodium, um, because for your body, it's more important that it has the right proportions than it has the right volume. So the volume of your blood can really dramatically change, Mm -hmm. um, during workouts, before workouts, you know, whatever. And the big thing that your body focuses on is getting enough, um, of the, of the nutrients to stay within the right range. So, um, in addition to just water, I would say this is a personal recommendation is I felt, I felt the best when I had an excess of water and an excess of salt because your body will figure out the right numbers itself. That's its main goal is to get that proportion right. So you get into trouble when you don't have enough electrolytes, you get into trouble when you don't have enough water. And, you know, okay, if you if you overconsume sodium, everyone's like, reduce your sodium intake. I think that if you have enough water, it's not a problem. So, And, and you know, to be fair, I think it's a different discussion of someone who is sedentary, and has a really high sodium diet because there's there's other things that if we look at the american diet go with high sodium diets right that are not healthful and <clears throat> if you're an athlete your your kidneys are going to figure it out right if you're mm-hmm. you have a little bit higher sodium you have a little bit more water your kidneys are going to figure it out and i, I have to say this now because it's like it just stuck with me uh, i was at a conference a few years ago and the presenter was talking about hydration and he basically made the comment as like well look you know what Drink whatever you want. I don't drink whatever tastes good for you when you're working out. Drink whatever you you know you will drink to get the fluid volume in, because the and this is a quote: the dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest sports scientist. All right, which his point is like your your body's real good at figuring this out. It's like you don't need the sports scientist to to mess around in the lab and tell you oh you should drink this drink with this ratio or this drink with this other ratio. Drink the one that you like, and your kidney will handle it as long as you give it the opportunity to do so. Yep. And that, that's very similar to the eat enough salt, drink enough water. Your mm-hmm. body's going to figure it out. But if you don't give it enough, 
it's it's not going to figure it out. So that the yeah, the most important thing is get the water down, get the electrolytes down, your body will figure out the proportions. Um, but you know, I think the main point of that is if you if you don't like drinking this thing, you're going to drink less of it. It's not going to help you. Exactly. Um, the best, you know, not to name brands, but there's one isotonic gel that tastes like urine. Um, okay, I've never had urine, but you know, it tastes like what I would imagine, and and it's it's so bad, but it's been scientifically proven to be the best thing ever. And I don't want to take that gel. I can't have four of these per hour. Like I can't even have one. Um, and that's a great example of uh, yeah. I, that's so, that that's so important, right? Like it, if you don't like it, it's just going to sit in your pocket or your bottle cage, and you're going to be dehydrated and low on fuel. Yep. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the traditional guideline for. Um, exercise is you should not lose more than 2% of your body weight. Mm -hmm. That's what is traditionally stated. And actually Todd was the one who recommended a book for me that really questioned that in one of the chapters. Um, So towards the end, we're going to talk about that chapter and how they kind of debunked some of these uh, typical ideas. But um, say we play with this 2% number. So if you're, you know, 70, I'm like 70 kilos. So I came home from an endurance ride and I was like 68, six. Okay. So like you're right on the limit. So, I well, that's like 5%, right? Um, 68? 1.4 out of 70. That's, oh, no, no, that's two, that's 2%, right? Uh, yeah, you're not supposed to do math on a podcast. Yeah, I guess that's 2%. So I was pretty toast, but was I toast because I did a four and a half hour ride? Uh, and I burned 2,500 or 3,000 kilojoules, or was I toast because I'd lost 2% of my body weight? That's, uh, that's, that's up for debate. Yeah. So um, in terms of the hydration, I would say uh, it is a good idea to weigh yourself before and after. If you can get in the habit of changing in the bathroom and stepping on the scale um, without clothes on, then when you go to shower after, uh, depending on if you shower before or after, you recover like do your recovery shake, um, that will tell you how much you lost. And uh, it's always good to look at that. It's not perfect because, you know, food ingested, you know, CO2 released through breath, like it's, uh, you know, and longer rides can be confounding, but it, it is, it's good to know. It's, it's, it's just good. data yeah, I mean, points. I think it's a pretty good proxy though, right? I mean, if it's like close to zero, then you're like, I did a pretty good job. And if it's, you know, two, three, four percent, then you should probably be considering like, what didn't I do correctly, right? Yeah. And I think the big thing here though is did my performance, you know, did I have a bad workout? Mm -hmm. And then you look and, oh, I, um, I'm 3% low on Mm -hmm. my body weight. I wonder what happens next time if I'm not 3% low. Oh, I had a much better workout. Then that's something to focus on. And I think there's probably some value in looking in, and I know we've talked about weighing yourself before, but like even tracking it over time, right? And like if you you wake up and your your weight is low, right? I mean, there's there's a range, right, of your weight, like right? you know, there's sort mm-hmm. of some error bars around what your actual weight is. Yeah. And if you wake up one day and it's low, and then you go out and you have a pad workout, right? That could be also a hydration issue, right, that carried over from the day before, and now mm-hmm. you're recognizing it. So not just the you know weighing before after workout but like even think about that before number relative to your trend over time and it was that low and did that impact my performance 
Yeah, I definitely get nervous if... I mean, I step on the scale every time I go to the bathroom, and I, I do it enough to know what I should be weighing with mm-hmm. clothes on, stuff like that. And I get nervous if I'm a half, half a kilo light at night. Mm-hmm. Um, did I not hydrate enough? Am I like low on glycogen stores? Because uh, remember, glycogen uh, stores with water, so the combined weight of an extra 100 grams of carbs is about a pound, I believe. Um, so stuff like this, it's just a good habit to get into. And I don't know, maybe it just depends on if the cognitive load is worth it for you, I guess. I don't know. I think there's a lot of ways to do right. Like there are smart scales now that'll just record the data to your phone. Yeah, that's true. You can plot a trend line. That's what I do. Like my scale is Bluetooth. It goes to my phone. It plots a nice trend line for me. I can, (laughs) I can work out like the the mental strain is not, is, you know, minimal. Um, yeah. As opposed to I'm like, well, what, what was it yesterday? Or what's my trend? Like, it's there. Mm-hmm. It's on the phone. So I, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but back, uh, I think about 18 months ago, I was big on losing weight. I just moved to the area and it's cool to go up old La Honda, you know, faster. So I was like, wow, why don't we just lose weight? Which this is not a good idea because if you lose weight and you lose power, you haven't done anything. The, the net effect is, is zero, right? It's the yeah. power to weight ratio. And if they both go down. Right. So what I, what I would do is I would just be happy every time I stepped on the scale and it was lower. And it's, it's kind of a greedy way to lose weight. And it's not, oh, did I lose fat mass? Did I lose um, arm muscle mass? Did I lose, you know, what did I lose? That, that question was not asked. It was just, am I lighter? And so then you end up under fueling. You end up under hydrating. Um, stuff like that. You have to be careful when you lose weight. It, you know, why did I lose weight? And is it good weight? You know, it, it, is it valuable or am I decreasing performance? Right. Is it, it at the end of the day, right? Is it healthy weight loss versus is it weight loss that's detrimental to your performance? Yeah, and I think that at the end of the day, the I think it's unhealthy for the professional cyclists who are really weight fixated, like Tour de France riders. I think that they should be focusing on: Am I lean? You know, do I have enough muscle mass to, you know, complete my needs, but also no more? And if they can say yes to all of those, they'll be the weight they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that a lot of pros do look at the number, but I would even argue even the top riders don't need to do that. So some of the symptoms of um, decreased, uh, you know, blood volume, decreased water levels in your body are uh, increased heart rate and that mm-hmm. goes back to your blood gets thicker so you you have to work harder to move it around and there's um, less volume of it right so I mean, yeah it's... so well and it's kind of interesting that well okay i want i actually want to save this point for later because i have a, a good point on it um and then the the other thing is the onset of heat illness which is um you know lightheadedness um you know extreme fatigue um like even sometimes you stop sweating. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes confusion, depending on how, yeah. how far you go down the spectrum, right? To heat stroke. Yep. So um, uh, the big focus um, of this chapter that we talked about before, the book is called Endure by Alex Hutchinson, who um, the idea is basically he wants to see why we stop doing this endurance. You know, why do marathon runners slow down? Why, you know, why can't we run forever? Mm-hmm. Um, and it can definitely be, um, it can be translated to even shorter events, you know, to whatever event you want, it, it asks and answers some good questions. And then at the same time, it sometimes says, I don't know, uh, which is fun to read about. Um, but 
one thing that they said is, um, you know, marathon runners, you know, you know this this two percent number going back to that. They said marathon runners can lose up to ten percent of their body weight in a marathon. Uh, so they'll go from you know marathon runners are super light, so they'll go from one twenty eight to one fifteen um, in a race. Jeez, yeah, so, so much, so much. <laughs> so and and that's like pure water as well because they'll they'll measure their uh, sweat rate and mm-hmm. they'll be sweating like three liters an hour and what a liter is two pounds. Yeah, they're about so, yeah. Yeah, so I mean they're losing six, six pounds, pounds an hour. Of they run about two hours. Yep. So yeah, it's twelve pounds right there. Uh, which you know, and if they weigh one hundred thirty, that's yeah, that's ten percent. And 10%. they, you know, they're fine. They they're not dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this sort of example says, is this two percent number right or real or does it even mean anything? So that's interesting because it'd be interesting to measure their power output in the last hour the last 15 minutes of that marathon right yeah because i i want to believe like even if they're keeping pretty even pace that they're doing that by shedding weight and then there's a decrement in performance right so their total power output goes down mm. but however the power to weight ratio is maintained yeah and that's the performance right that's what we see on the clock and you know whatever they ran a 435 mile that's that hasn't changed mm-hmm. so i think that that's a good question um I want to say that the it's likely that they're that so does their split time decrease? I don't think it. Well, decrease. You mean like uh, well, it's, get worse. it's slower. Yeah. I mean, I think a little bit over time. I haven't like studied the you know the top mm-hmm. you know world record marathon, but I imagine yes, there's some slowing towards the end of the race. But I mean, those guys are so fast. Right? They're still like they're still running like yeah. four. I want to say the world record pace is four thirty. Five four thirty six like mm-hmm. it's that it's that four twenty six <laughs> it's for something right and like yeah. well I mean um, for twenty six miles yeah they're that, holding right. four thirty something yeah which a lot of people would dream like, to do one of yeah I mean much less like run four hundred meters at that pace yeah <laughs> so um, the big takeaway from that is the questioning of this two percent rule so a lot of recent stuff the book quotes to that uh, two thousand seventeen. Uh, most recently, the uh, I think it's the British Sports Science Institute said that athletes should aim for like three to six percent weight loss in extreme um, athletic performances, and so they noted that you know you don't really see a decrease in performance once you get up to about six percent. That's what uh, they had suggested. So that's like a a different uh, guideline. That's still a lot of weight, and uh, I would argue that. Um, there's, there's other stuff going on. If you've gotten, if you've lost eight pounds, um, to eight pounds of water, eight pounds of whatever to, you know, to achieve your goal, there are going to be performance issues. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think you have to be careful there, right? I think the, you're starting to tread on pretty thin ice as far as, yeah. And also like recovery the next, if it's in, you know, this was for all training efforts was the mm-hmm. recommendation. So for the ne- for the next day, how do you get eight pounds back? Well, it's a whole gallon. Yeah. Right? So, so now you're um, about two gallons, right? Like you got to make up the gallon from yesterday Yeah. and then drink the gallon today. And you your absorption rate is not 100% uh, for fluids. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think in training you should... I mean, I think this 2% number is still good in training. Um, but 
what should you do in uh, performance. I think that you should be maybe a little less worried unless you really notice that it's actually affecting you and you're sure it's the hydration. So, um, you know, are these marathon runners able to do 10% because they're used to it and they're okay with it? Or is it because humans can do, you know, extreme losses? Um, would they be better with less? You know, the, we don't really know the answers to these things, but um, don't be, I think back, I, you know, if we want to apply this to cycling, I had a race, a three and a half hour road race. Um, I think it was 30, you know, 30, probably 3000 kilojoules about. Um, and I had three bottles for that race because um, there was one neutral feed for the whole race and I had two on my bike. And like, I did okay. I did fine. I was toast at the end, but was I toast at the end because, um, because it was a hard race? Was I toast at the end because I only had three bottles? Um, or was I toast at the end because I wasn't able to eat enough because the gels wouldn't go down because my mouth was too dry? Um, I, I believe it's the third option. So in terms of application, you know, if you're, if you're like, oh, I missed the feed, my race is over. That's not true. No, no. I mean, I think I've, I've been in a similar situation where like, you know, like feed, feed zone gone wrong. Right. And, you know, it's probably closer to a like two hour and change mountain bike race and like basically had one bottle. Right. And I was just like, yep. it is what it is. You keep on riding, you know, was the last third of that race really hard? Yes. But same question, right? Like, was it cause I couldn't get enough food in? Was it cause, was it because I didn't have the water? I, I almost want to believe that it has to do with what your expectation is and what the reality is, right? Like if you had told me at the beginning of the race, like, you know what, it actually doesn't matter how much you hydrate, like drink if you can, but if you don't, you'll be fine. Um, I think part of it's your expectation, right? Like, well, I was planning on drinking three bottles today or like, right. Or at least <laughs> I have an opportunity and I only have one. And now this is like, now I have to do this like rationing and you know, whatever, right. Yeah. You psych yourself out. And then, and now, you know, now your conscious mind is taking over. But if you had told me, you know, like one lap in, like, Hey, don't worry about the hydration. You'll, you'll be fine. It's two hours. Like your body will take care of it and yeah. go drink some after the race. Um, would I perform better? Who knows? Like you, you never know. But I, I think I suspect that I would have, I think there's just some mental strain that was happening there. Right. There's so much psychology <clears throat> in bike racing and racing in general. I, I tend to agree with you on this, on the expectations. And I think the other thing is the mentally strong, the people who are okay with adapting when a plan goes wrong, will always be more successful. Um, so the big thing on this 10% loss that I, you know, this is not mentioned in the book, but kind of clicked for me is that maybe uh, blood volume is not a limiter in their performance. Um, these marathon runners, if they're, you know, you're basically at your threshold for two hours mm -hmm. or, you know, 95% of your threshold. Um, you know, for them, it's probably like 98% of their threshold. Sure. Um, yeah. They're, they're the cream of the crop. <laughs> yep. So I would say that you know, they're aerobically limited, you know, the oxygen intake, they're not limited by the thickness of their blood, basically. And as long as their brain, their central governor isn't telling them to stop or they're going to die, um, their, you know, their heart is willing to work harder because the heart rate is not the limiter. Um, it's the, you know, it's something else in the chain. And mm -hmm. we talked about the chain last episode a little bit. Um, but I think that, I mean, that's, that was the big click for me when I read it was, Oh, so like, it's just their heart's strong enough. It's, yeah. you know, that it's not a problem. They have lower blood volume. Um, and, you know, luckily they don't have to, they don't have to navigate like, in, you know, in a crit, 
if you're you know you're dehydrated you're a little uh, a little dizzy uh, it starts to get unsafe but you know marathon runners you just go straight and then the marshal says turn left here you know and you turn left and so you know you can be a little dizzy for sure you know a little uh woozy and still you know going at it at full pace i think yeah i mean i think i would i would believe you there i've i've not run a marathon run a half marathon and that was hard enough i don't don't know that i'll (laughs) i don't know that i'll do a full marathon ever but yeah i mean like it's very it's a very different thing like i feel like in a bike race there's a like just a different level of awareness that you need especially especially when you're trying to ride in a group and ride fast yep and i mean mountain biking i assume is I bet mountain biking is even harder than pro pro road in terms of the concentration level. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be, there's a lot of things to focus on. Right. And like, especially when you get into a, a rocky or a technical descent or something, it's like you need to focus and, you know, braking and all, all that little stuff starts to matter and body weight and positioning. And yeah, if you, if you don't do it right, there are sometimes consequences for that. Right. Like, yep. So yeah, definitely a lot of focus required. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was my experiences with rehydration and a couple of studies that I found that I now will have to dig up again. Um, I did research on this uh, probably six months ago, and that gave me the methods that I've been using. But um, the one big thing is I use Scratch Labs during rides, and it's a little costly, but it's absolutely better than anything else I've found. Um, I don't think those fizzy drops... Um, the little cylinders. I don't the, think they the do things anything. that look like seltzer. Yeah, I don't think they do anything. And also, I don't like the fizz and the bitterness of them. Um, I think studies have shown that most people respond well to a salty lemon lime flavor. Um, in terms of, like, they basically dehydrated. Um, they dehydrated people, which, like, all these studies, they start with. We reduced um, our studies, you know, our uh, human subjects' body weight by four um, percent. That's like always the first step, which is like, yeah. you guys are like kind of evil. Some of the some of the sports drink studies are are interesting, right? Of how how they go about doing the the methodology, yeah. right? Like if you if you really dig, like read in between the lines a little bit and go through the methods, like does this really apply to the use case that they're selling me on? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, right? Like, this is not how I go. I don't first go sit in the sauna and get my body weight down 4% before I go on my training ride. Yeah, and also, um, yeah, the the sauna stuff, I mean, that puts puts an aerobic load. Your heart rate increases dramatically in the sauna as well. So, you know, do they Should we take take a time out here and measure our heart rates now that we're, you know, in our pseudo sauna? Yeah, uh, (laughs) not as high as... So, I do... I go in the sauna pretty regularly and... um, I mean, you'll get up to like 140 for sure. I'm just sitting there. Um, on this topic, you know, uh, weight like uh, weightlifters, mm-hmm. like competition, uh, like Mr. Mr. Olympia or whatever, yeah. what, uh, whatever Mr. Um, Universe or whatever it is. They, uh, you know, they they go in the sauna to, um, you know, look to to really accentuate mm-hmm. the muscles. And they're like, when they're up on the stage, their resting heart rate's like 120. Uh, that's like kind of terrifying. Well, I mean, you have the same thing with um, wrestlers and boxers, um, MMA type fighters. They're they're like doing dehydration so they can make weight, mm-hmm. right? And, and then doing it's like usually super, the day before. Super restrictive diets, right? So they can make weight. They're probably like cutting down their glycogen stores a ton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the day before the fight, and then and then they're like doing this crazy rehydration refueling thing, right? So yep. like the weight they step on that scale at 
is very different than their actual trained weight that they're going to go into that ring at. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, and you have to wonder, like, what, I mean, they're both doing it, typically, right? Like, both both uh, competitors are doing it, so I assume that it's fairly equal unless someone has a better methodology for, you know, mitigating yeah. the, the challenges of reducing your weight that dramatically. Um, but yeah, you, you, you wonder, like, what would this person's peak performance actually be if they didn't do this crazy weight cutting thing the day, you know, well, a couple of days leading up to their important fight? Yeah. I mean, of course, the point is to try and make it even between the two fighters yep. um, to keep their weight because weight, you know, muscle mass is like a, a big indicator sure. of performance. Um, but so where was I with this? Um, scratch, scratch for rides. Um, I'll do, you know, if it's hot, I'll do a bottle of scratch, a bottle of plain per hour. Um, which is that hits just about your maximum absorption rate. Um, and then if it's less hot, I'll do, you know, I still do the one-to-one, but, mm-hmm. uh, maybe at a smaller proportion and, um, it's not too complicated. It's definitely better than those fizzy drops and it's definitely better than pure water. Um, I would say it's difficult in a race to use scratch, especially if you're getting a neutral feed, which is really common at the amateur level is just volunteers standing there giving you. Unless you have like a significant other or a, I don't know, a kid that you can con in, con uh, into standing on the side of the road for three hours for you. Um, I think that I don't have a good solution to, um, to what to do if you only have neutral water, except maybe do a double, you know, the two that you start the race with should both be scratch and then just do your best with the rest of the race. Um, but I would also say that don't be afraid of not having electrolytes. This is the same thing as not having enough water. Um, you're going to be okay. Uh, but, you know, okay, optimally, yeah, you should have scratch instead of water for half your bottles. But you got to do what you can. And remember, you know, this goes back to everyone else is in the same situation. Um, and even if they aren't, you know, it's not, it's not an, a maximal effort. There's strategy, there's tactics, there's other stuff that goes into your win. Yeah, and that's it's not the make or break, right? Like when we talk about having too much water, right? And you're, you know, hyponatremia, it's low sodium in the blood. It's not, you know, in a four hour road race, if you had a couple of bottles of electrolyte and then you had like a couple of bottles of just plain water, you're not going to get to that point unless you were starting off in a really bad place, right? This, these are the things where people are just like chugging water just totally recklessly during their event, right? It's like, just like you know, multiple bottles of just straight water per hour, and they're really diluting their blood. Uh, mm-hmm. So like, it's not even you know. Like, yes, it does happen, um, and like I think the, they see this at uh, marathons. They actually cut down on the number of aid stations and saw that the cases of hyponatremia were reduced because people were just like mm-hmm. the not not the, obviously not the elites because they were losing ten percent of body weight, so they weren't stopping for water. Yeah. Um, but the the rest of the folks that were running the marathon. We're just like slamming water like at every aid station, right? Mm-hmm. And they're slamming too much water, and then they're actually, you know, decreasing their slow di- sodium to dangerous levels, their sodium concentration. Yep. So like having actually having less water available on the course ended up, you know, population health wise for marathon runners being a better decision, which is probably counterintuitive to what we think about. It's like, oh well, we should have hydration available, um, but then you leave people to their own devices and they. Um, yeah, and I, I remember looking up stuff on the topic of muscle cramps, which is also somewhat related to electrolyte. Um, I remember reading that it's not 
you know, everyone's like, oh, you need to eat more bananas if you get muscle cramps. That's the uh, that's what they tell all the high school sports kids. Right. Um, but I think that the studies show that it's a dramatic diff. It's a dramatic change in electrolyte levels that your body's not used to that causes muscle cramps. So people who have low sodium diets and are always low sodium they don't have muscle cramps because their body's used to to operating on that without that much sodium. People who are on high sodium diets and they get enough during their rides, they're fine. But it's it's the people who they have, you know, one big hot day and they only drink water and their body dramatically has less sodium in it who get muscle cramps or you know, potassium. Mm-hmm. Um it's this big change which um, I would say that for cyclists, th- I mean, this just isn't going to happen if you're a trained cyclist because who, you know, who trains in 70 degree weather, you know, for weeks and then does one 95 degree event, um, and doesn't have any electrolyte drink. Um, and I think that you, you notice that there aren't that many examples of cramping and cycling and mm-hmm. the way, basically the way you get over it is you train, you train like you race. Which I mean, you should be doing that anyway. There's there's a lot of benefits to that, on on so many levels. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, I just thought of that um, muscle cramping thing. That's a whole. That's like a topic for a whole another. another yeah, episode. it's weird. And you read three different articles on cramping, and they all have their own theory. And uh, basically, nobody really knows. <laughs> right. Which is like so interesting because, like, muscle cramping is just like basic phenomenon that we've all experienced if we've been in mm-hmm. sports at some point right like you in my opinion you see it way too often in professional sports on tv so cycling aside but like you watch a football game or a basketball game like particularly football like guy gets a cramp you're like come on you're a professional <laughs> athlete like you have a training yeah. staff you have co- like who's not doing their job here right i mean yeah well i think <clears throat> i would argue that it's because they they go so deep that could be your cop out um is you know football players what there's you know x number of plays in every play you need to go full gas you know if you're a lineman or whatever fair um, fair but you get timeouts you get brag right i mean yeah so well the, the, the other thing is like you know imagine the intensity of 21 out of 23 days in the tour de france yeah these are the best riders in the world but they have off days they have days, not not off days as in days they don't feel good. They have days that are like leisurely strolls. And they post their Strava afterwards and it's like 150 average watts for the day. And you're it, like... It, 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 yes, and you say like, yes, I could do that. And then you look at the like the 10 minute peak and you're like, oh, yeah. but that part. But so like compared to a one day classic race where you know how deep they go in that or like, you know, Worlds you, you or... have... And, and these other sports you have... You, know, you have one football game, you have one soccer game per week. Yep. And yeah, you go so deep for that and you take two or three days to recover. Uh, so that that's what I would say. Yeah, I could see a soccer player losing six pounds of water weight and sure. cramping and because it is it's full gas the whole time. Um, Unless you're messy and then you get critiqued for walking too much. Yeah. I mean, his job is to score. So... I, I have no issue. I'm just saying the, yeah. the, the critique out there is like, well, look at him. He's he's walking again. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to uh, the difference between bike racing and running. Like nobody cares what your time is in a bike race. Did you cross the line first or not? Yep. You know, who cares if you did 30 watts less than everyone else? That's a good thing. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, and, right. Running's very objective. Like, so what was your time? Yeah. Oh, I ran this pace. Yeah, right. what's your five k? You know, yeah. and cycling's like, how you know, what are your results? Yeah, you know, did you win? How many top tens or top fives yeah. do you have? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe Messi's smarter than all of us. He's doing right. less work in scoring. That's, like, that's what the right. Heck? Yeah, he's like he's he's the guy who who wins the race with the lowest watts, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the next thing is uh, rehydrating afterwards. So uh, usually scratch during does a pretty good job. I mean, here it's pretty temperate, seventies, eighties. Um, if it's too hot, you should ride more in shaded areas. Uh, we have like a ridge that. Um, we're by and the closer you ride to the ridge actually it's cooler because mm-hmm. the the way the sunlight hits it and stuff like that and also if you go up on the top of the ridge um, it's generally cooler up there as well so that's one way to decrease you know if you decrease the external temperature your body needs to produce less sweat to maintain its internal temperature mm-hmm. so that's a good way to decrease your fluid losses if if you're like i only have these two hours to do intervals you know go somewhere go to the coolest place you can um, if it's hundred out and mm-hmm. you know, you need it to be 85, uh, to not be in a dangerous situation. Um, but say you come home and you're three pounds light, like I was after my endurance ride. Um, studies have shown, you know, one big thing, I don't know how you'll feel about this. Studies have shown that glucose in water has no effect on rehydration rates. I mean, I, so sorry, that's the anti-sports drink. Um, yeah suggestion oh we're getting sued by gatorade now <laughs> um but look i feel like salt yeah i mean there are the transporters that are supposed to take uh, you know the glucose and the salt together and I don't, I don't know i i think salt probably matters right that's what's gonna hold it yep. more than glucose. so the <laughs> the one study that showed this they had um they had a salt group they had a water group they had a salt and glucose group and they had a glucose group and both the salt, you know, the salt and glucose group did the same as the salt group and the water and the water and glucose group did the same. And they're like, yeah, glucose doesn't do anything. Um, so, in, it, you know, if your goal is rehydration, your sugar water is not going to do anything more than just plain water. Um, but I would argue, though, if it's the end of, a, of an endurance ride, you're probably feeling a bit tired anyway. And what's a little bit of a blood sugar spike? Only, yeah. If only a good thing. I mean, you probably need some sugar at that point, right? Your your fuel stores are probably getting a little low. So. Yep. So, you know, and, and also it could make it more palatable, uh, which can help. But it's certainly not detrimental. Um, it's just, it's just you know, not. Right. Don't, don't no expect effect. it to improve the conditions. Yeah. Don't say, oh, I need a tablespoon of sugar to help absorb more. Um, and I know Scratch includes sugar in their stuff. And I think that, I mean, the only reason that's useful is because you have to have one less gel during yep. your hour because yep. um, it's 20 something grams of carbs yeah i mean i think as we pointed out earlier if having the sugar in there is going to encourage you to drink it it's going to make it more palatable um then yeah. by all means and right we we know there's these sort of um short connections between the tongue and the brain right that when that sugar hits the tongue you you know like even when you do those carbohydrate mouth rinses, that you actually get an improvement in performance. So, yeah, we can talk about that really quickly. What are these carbohydrate rinses? So they've done a, a series of different studies, right, where you look at somebody's, you know, doing an endurance performance, and you know, you could give them water, um, or right, we we always understand that if you supplement with carbohydrates, that's going to help your performance and keep your your fuel stores up. So someone clever said, well, do you have to take the carbohydrates in, right? And so 
developed these studies where they'd have a, a sugary mouth rinse that basically it's like a sports drink, right? You take a swig of it, you'd swish around your mouth and then you'd spit it out, right? So no carbohydrates actually were ingested. So in theory, right, you have no more extra fuel in the tank, yet they noticed an increase in performance. And a decrease in perceived effort. Right. And thus the, you know, hypothesis as well, we must have some sort of, you know, connection from the receptors in our tongue to our brain, like central governor, perhaps, that are saying, hey, the, the fuel is coming. So like you can, you know, back off the, the restriction a little bit because you, you don't have to be so concerned. Yeah, um, that's that's the basics of it. And uh, like you said, the you know, we, we may have 500 grams of stored glycogen, but uh, how much of that is getting how much of that is used before your body tells you to back off? Um, and this is a way to get lower down on that stores. Um, the other thing on this topic is, you know, gels, if you take a gel, it, they, you know, they had gels where you could see the molecules in, um, you know, they doped them is, is what it's called. Um, and you could see the, the doped molecules in muscles within five minutes uh, within the body. So, um, yeah, so I put like um, a radioisotope. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, like X, X radium or um, something like that. And so, yeah, within five minutes, the, those isotopes were in the muscles. So, um, you're when you know when you eat uh, sugary something not only does your brain say okay we're gonna be fine we have more fuel on the way but also it you know it does other metabolic processes to open up to accept that um, that sugar very quickly so um, the big thing for rehydration the one study that I found on optimal rehydration if your if your hydration status is poor is they recommended um, Basically, they, they dehydrated people to 4% um, decrease in body weight, and then they had them ingest um, water with different levels of sodium in uh, sodium concentration. So like 10 millimoles per milliliter, you know, 30, 60, 80. And basically, they determined that the rehydration rate didn't increase after 60 millimoles per milliliter. And you're gonna you're gonna tell me what that is in like teaspoons per liter or something. So I think useful. I calculate. So the the argument that the paper made was have at least sixty millimoles per milliliter. Anything more than that won't make you hydrate better, and your body will excrete it, mm -hmm. you know, soon enough. Um, so I think I calculated an easy enough uh, number of like basically a quarter teaspoon of salt per liter. Yep. Okay. That's um, that's consistent with what I've I've heard and, and used personally. So, I mean, you, you just do the math of um, millimoles to moles to, you know, liters. And um, remember, uh, sodium is sodium chloride or salt is sodium yep. chloride. So you have to take Two, the partial yes. uh, weight. Um, but yeah, I think, it, I mean, it was like an eighth, it was like an eighth of a teaspoon per quart or per pint of ballot mm -hmm. or um, whatever the math was. So when I'm desperate for rehydration, I have a liter bottle and I will put a quarter teaspoon of salt in it and it tastes salty. Yeah, it, um, it, it tastes like you're swimming <laughs> in the ocean. Yeah. And, uh, it's also difficult. So the, the recommendation was for two hours, each hour do a liter of this 60 millimoles per milliliter solution. And, um, basically it said you should try and do a liter an hour, but they said you could do up to a liter and a half the first hour and then half a liter the second hour. But basically you want two liters in, in the, in the two hours, uh, following the dehydration, Mm -hmm. And that's the optimal way to get the, you know, your blood volume back up. 
that's useful. Like, it's not very fun. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like hopefully you prevent yourself from getting to that place by yep. doing appropriate hydration before and during your your event or your training. All right. So one one last question while we're on hydration. I, I, at the sense we're kind of wrapping up here, and I, I want to make sure that we we get this in uh, and and talk about. It. I think a lot of people ask about this, which is, you know, okay, water, great, sports drink, great. Like I think that definitely counts towards our gallon. Um, what about things like coffee and beer, right? Which have sort of diuretic properties. Um, how do tea you as well? Tea, yep, can fit in there. How do you feel about those things? How do you think about those things when you're thinking about your your overall hydration picture? For me personally, I think that. Um, well, I found a study that said that um, the the water excreted through urine of people who drank coffee and water was the same in the morning basically they just said drink three cups of coffee or drink three cups of water Mm -hmm. and they measured their urine output and it was the same number so i mean unfortunately the study didn't say anything more than it was the same number which you know if people who are like pro coffee are yeah see look you get hydrated from coffee and people who are anti-coffee are like well did that water go to the right place or whatever um i would say my personal experience coffee it can hydrate. I think the big problem with coffee is though you'll drink less total volume if you have coffee. I mean, how much bitter water can you put down? <laughs> uh, and, and like enjoyably either. Uh, like um, it'll take an hour or, or an hour and a half to drink your, you know, your cup of coffee because it's enjoyable and relaxing. Um, but the total water consumed, especially if you wake up in your, you know, it was hot at night. So you wake up a little dehydrated. You're not going to get down as much water if you have coffee. But in terms of hydration, I would argue it's probably about the same. The only difference to think about is that dry feeling in your mouth of the diuretic more than the urine production, that feeling of dryness, how does that affect you mm-hmm. uh, mentally, you know, physically or whatever? Sometimes it's kind of distracting to not have, you know, to, to have that dryness. And then also it can make you not want to eat as much. Um, and then if you're not fueling enough, then you'll be like, oh, I'm dehydrated. But in reality, you just had one less gel per hour during your event because um, you don't feel like eating. So that's coffee. Tea, I think, is the same as coffee. Like what I said about coffee can be apply to tea. Beer, I mean, I don't drink alcohol um, except, you know, every once in a while I'll have like a beer in the evening. And yeah, it absolutely detrimentally affects the next day's training, um, even one Um to counteract it, yeah, you got to have a salty breakfast and uh, and a lot of water at breakfast to not be hit with something, um, even if it's just one beer. But uh, some, you know, I don't know. At the end of the day, this goes back to our original point with hydration. If you can still do the workout, you're okay. Sure, um, sure. So, you know, some people can are, you know, I think I'm a little more finicky as a rider and I'm more likely to bag a workout if it's if the stars aren't aligned, whereas some people are a little more bullish and like, man, I don't feel great. Let's punch it out. Uh, I, I don't have that mentality. And I think that I've gotten in trouble when I've had that mentality in terms of like overuse injuries and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But some people I know who drink more beer and are high level cyclists. Yeah, they just tough through the, you know, the dehydration or the the whatever. But um, I would say definitely it dehydrates you and i notice when i have alcohol cool so i mean i think i've thing i've heard just as a rule of thumb like for your 
going to drink a beer, then like whatever volume of beer, if you have a pint, you should counteract that with at least a pint of water, right? Just as a, a little rule of thumb to try to keep yourself hydrated because you know it's going to take something out of you like that. And that beer shouldn't count towards your your total. Like if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get a of food today, don't count that pint of beer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also you should have some sodium with that water. I think it feels like to me beer like really decreases sodium levels um, for whatever reason. So I think that's part of it. I don't, unfortunately, maybe I'll have to look up some white papers now on it, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to do, and I don't, I haven't studied this enough recently, but it has, it has to do with the interaction, right, of the alcohol down the line and, and how it impacts the kidneys and everything and, yep. and forcing. Right? That's the other thing is um, it can affect liver function for the next couple of days even, depending on how heavy the drinking was. And then, you know, obviously liver function is pretty important to uh, overall athletic performance. So, um. I don't know if you're serious. You can go without beer. That's my opinion. Uh, sure. But whatever. Do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, and there's the whole other topic of non-alcoholic beer as a recovery drink, but we won't go there okay. today. Okay, I we'll don't save, know anything we'll save that, that. Okay, we'll save that one for another day. <laughs> well, so mountain bikers are a lot more into alcohol than roadies, I think. I think, yes. I think so. uh, beer and mountain biking, for some reason, go hand in hand. <laughs> um, so, that, yes, that's a, a fairly common place to find a mountain biker after a ride is uh, at a pub or something. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I'm busy taking a shower and drinking my protein shake and doing all my robotic roadie stuff. So Yes, and we're out there, like, you know, get with our technique getting the poison oak off and having a beer. <laughs> so let's transition to Todd's topic, uh, if you want to introduce it. Sure. So, you know, I think it's coming off of, um, as Jason mentioned, like one of my new favorite books, Endure, uh, right, which she's talking about. So what are the limits of human performance? Um, just... This year, there was a paper published. Um, the title is Extreme Events Reveal an Elementary Limit on Sustained Maximal Human Energy Expenditure. So it's it's looking at like what is the limit of endurance? Um, and it's looking at it um, not as a broad perspective as Endure did, like Endure broke down like the different systems and where, where these systems fail. Um, this is looking at like super long time frames and looking at like calorie consumption and, and how like what's the peak calorie consumption that a human can maintain for a long period of time and um, i saw a news when todd sent me this topic i saw a news article about the paper um and it's important to mention this is like weeks months right yeah this is like so it's really they do a really interesting thing where they plot a curve from short events and so the shortest event they look at is an 800 meter run um, okay. like, and so I think they, they, they do it in like different phases, like from less than one tenth of one day to, you mm -hmm. know, that's one group of events. And then they have like events le lasting less than one half of one day. Uh, and then they have like longer term, right? Days, weeks, months long events that are mm -hmm. on their, you know, like on their trajectory. And then the, the longest event that they look at um, is actually pregnancy and lactation. Right, which we know is is months months long process uh, as far as energy expenditure, and so they actually like plot this fascinating curve based on the like the different expenditures. Right, and as as we all know from doing our workouts or doing the various events we've done, the shorter the event, the higher pace you can maintain. Right, like we could think about this in cycling uh, as our power output um, as a, as a curve. Right, that decays over time. Uh, we could think about this as like okay. You know, if I look at my relative rate of kilojoules per hour 
and I look at that at one hour, right? That's that's X, whatever. It's you know a thousand or twelve hundred or, or what have you. Um, but then if I you know extrapolate the energy, like the the relative rate of kilojoules per hour for say a, a three minute effort, right? That's much greater than the the absolute hour. But then if I go out to five hours, my kilojoule per hour rate goes down, right? And it, it continues to go down over time. And in a, you know in these very short very short again in, in time frame of this paper. Um, so the things that I think that we're used to doing like a one day race uh, or amateur road race, amateur mountain bike race, this curve's pretty steep, right? And like we, we appreciate that in our training. Like the, the difference of trying to do a really hard three minute interval versus doing a, an hour long effort at threshold, those wattage numbers are quite different, right? Yep. And the demand is quite different. Um, I noticed this 800 meter mark is basically avoiding your anaerobic engine and your creatine phosphate engine. Um, because right. the right the anaerobic engine maxes out at about ninety seconds. Yep. Um, so there is, you know, in an eight hundred meters, there's probably a lot of anaerobic it's a lot contribution. Of anaerobic, absolutely. Um, but really, they're just focusing on this aerobic engine and trying yeah. to flesh it out. In you know, if you look at um, even your critical power curve, mm-hmm. you know, these are relatively short events compared to this. A lot of the events in the study, but you have also like a pretty, uh, pretty nice looking exponential decay curve starting at you know, 90 seconds, you, you yeah. have the, the weird curve, you know, for the first 90 seconds and the, but it co- eventually yeah, it turns into a down and, exponential decay. Yeah. And like, so I have the paper here and like on, you know, share with Jason and we'll, we'll post the show notes, right? This is this nice yeah. exponential decay curve, right? Yeah. Like from real short to really, really, really long events. And, but, and it turns into a linear line. It's, it's pretty much at linear the at the bottom, right? Yeah. Like it, it has a, it has a limit, right? And that's, that's what, you know, their hypothesizing is sort of the limit of human performance for these ultra endurance type of events. Okay. Um, and so the way they looked at it is energy expenditure and they looked at it as energy expenditure in terms of, you know, relative to your basal metabolic rate. So a quick primer on basal metabolic rate. Um, that's the amount of energy that you would expend if you were just at rest, right? So maintaining basic body function. Um, you can calculate this. There's there's various calculators online. Um, just just because I was intrigued, I, I plugged mine in on a, on a calculator online, and so you know it, it takes into account height, age, you know your your relative activity level, and your, so basal uh, metabolic your rate is technically if you like laid in bed. Yep. Right. Yep. You're totally chill. Do nothing. Yeah. Right. Um, like how many calories would you burn? And then if you're sedentary, you're looking at two or three hundred more calories than that per day. Correct. Right. And then as we go into more and more active. And it, it fluctuates with different things, right? The the more lean muscle mass you have, that bumps up your basal metabolic rate. Mm. Um, and lean muscle mass is going to change it more than fat mass, relatively speaking, because right? muscle needs some energy to be maintained. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I, I I plug mine in, uh, you know, for reference, I'm about six three and one hundred and seventy three pounds, and so mine spit out at I want to say it was on the order of eighteen hundred calories. Um, okay. So, like, so apparently, if I did absolutely nothing all day. And laid in bed, I'd need 1,800 calories just to maintain. Maintain uh, body, mass, body mass, energy levels. Yeah, you know, for all the basic functions my body needs to do to maintain that, that resting state. Okay. And so then in this study, they're always referencing that rate, you know, for the individual times some factor. And that's what we can maintain for, you know, X duration. That make that makes sense? So they're, so they're claiming that. You know, I'm thinking of an Ironman, mm-hmm. what, nine-hour Ironman is, like, very respectable. Yep. They take, you know, kilojoules burned over nine hours, and that 
and then divide it by metabolic rate of the individual. And they're saying that there's an upper limit. Like all these pros, all the top 10 Ironman athletes, they all stay below some. They're, they're all bumping up against some limit. Yeah, right? but nobody's breaking through. Well, I mean, there's always going to be an outlier, right? Okay. But And so I think for the shorter events, this is probably more in the realm of the things discussed in Endure, right? Like, okay, well, what's the limiting factor here or there? Yeah, oxygen or um, right. red blood cell stuff. Right, mm-hmm. or maybe it's fluid, or maybe it's not fluid. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, or maybe it's nutrition that's coming in and out. So yeah. And so they, they plot all these things out. So um, if you're looking at... Um, Tour de France, since that's relevant for us, um, and that that was actually you know often cited as the ceiling before this study came out, um, and so Tour de France they're maintaining typically four to five x of phase metabolic rate during the the extent of the race. Okay. So right, so if that's me and we just do quick math, it's like nine thousand calories. Yeah. Luckily, yeah. most of the riders are. Right, they're like much smaller than me. So <laughs> five seven. <laughs> right. Um, so that's that's that. Um, you know, if you talk about, uh, like you mentioned, Ironman, or you talk about some of the the ultra marathon runs that are on the order of a day, um, anywhere from eight to nine x um, is the expected burn. Right? Okay. So again, now you're talking into the like quick math. 16 to 17,000 calories for me is what I'd expect. Like, again, that's like if I'm running or competing at world record pace, mm-hmm. that's not me. Uh, right. But like, per, well, that's per day, but an Ironman is right, less but, than half a day. Right. So remember, right. like, thinking about total energy expenditure, they're not doing more than eight or 9,000 kilojoules for the event. Sure. Um, sure. But it's still like, this is a big, this is a big number, right? Yeah. Um, so, okay. So then, you know, they, they extrapolate out longer and longer and longer events and the event that they used, um, here, uh, we're familiar with race across America, right? The cycling event. Yeah. Um, they basically did a running equivalent of it, uh, with a little, a little twist, right? So cycling race across America is continuous, right? You start in California, the pistol goes off and you race, First person to get to is, New York City. Right, or Maryland, or where are they? Uh, yeah, I think it's Maryland, you're right. Um, they race you know, indefinitely, right? You can race around the clock. Uh, in this particular study they did, this is a running race across the USA, uh, was 20, 20 weeks of running, uh, basically a marathon every day. They had a couple rest days in there. Like they had one or two rest days per week um, in there. Okay. But like, yeah, they're running, you know, 250 kilometers a week. Which is four to it was five to six marathons roughly, yeah, per week. Well, that's like um, who was the ultra? Uh, um, Dean Carnassus. No, uh, I'm thinking cycling. Steve, somebody, the the guy from the UK. Oh, the guy that ran the road like 200 miles. Yeah, he was aiming to do like eight eighty six thousand in a year or something. Yes, and yes. he held like 200 watts forever. That was his like, you know, like he would just do a 16 hour day at 200 watts. So interestingly, right, like I was going to go here later, but I'll go here now. Like you could calculate out, right, if you knew his wattage, you could calculate out his kilojoules and then like you could plot him Hmm. on this chart somewhere. Yeah, I wonder how he knew 200. He must have used similar resources to these researchers. Yeah, right, to be able to calculate out and say like, okay, well, what can I actually maintain? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I'm just going to jump to one of the punchlines here, right, is like if you wanted to race across America, Right. Like you could look at this chart, you could estimate how many days you think it might take you to do it. Mm-hmm. And then you could back out your pace, right. Based on what the, you know, estimated 
BMR multiple is that would be maintained for that time. Um, obviously, you have to like adjust because these are all like the elite world record levels that they're reporting on here. Yeah. Um, like you have to like you know have some factor to back out like. Well, relative to world record, where where do I stand? Um, mm-hmm. But theoretically, right, you could actually back out your, and you may you may even be able to like plot it on the curve using your prior shorter performances, right? And so like, okay, for you know, um, you know, shorter events for a three hour ride, my power is this. For longer rides, that I can plot my curve, and then here's where I end up, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, therefore, I think my pace would be this um, over this tor- sort of event, which is which is an interesting thing. Um, so yeah, so these, but to get back to the, the study and these runners, like, so one, like, I don't know where you find these people that are going to sign up to run that many marathons on consecutive days across the entire U S yeah. They're like 10 participants. Uh, they're, they're only six. So, so I mean, <laughs> okay. like, there are some conclusion, right? Some maybe weakness in that study, right? It's a small mm-hmm. end, but again, like how many people are willing to sign up for that? I mean, well, how, so there are six in the whole event or six who volunteered for the study? Six in the study. Okay. But I think that was sort of like the event and race were sort of. Well, look, there's 330 million, you know, if you get 36 people to do this event, you know, 0.00, you know, there's a number. Yeah. 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 The way the math works I mean, it, yeah, it's certainly not someone I would sign up for. I'll tell you that much. Even if it was like the biking equivalent of it, like, I don't think I would sign up for yeah. that. But neither, neither here nor there. Um, so, yeah. So they... You know, they did some of the fun radioisotope stuff that we mentioned. They looked at, you know, respiratory rate and trying to understand how much energy was being exchanged. Um, and so for these folks, they found that the plateau was below 3x BMR, okay. um, you know, on a sustained basis and probably closer to about two and a half for most people. Um, and then, you know, turns out when you plot that, that's actually not too far from what pregnancy is over a long term. Okay. Um, and then you know, I mean I don't know which you know popular media outlet you read this in, but like yeah, some were like, well, you know, pregnancy is the um, ultimate you know in human endurance, right? Like it's at the end of this curve, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. Uh, it's certainly like growing another human being is a challenging physiological process that's incredibly energy intensive. Yeah, I mean, I, neither of us have any experience with this anyway. So no, I, <laughs> I only have secondhand experience of being yep. a, a witness there, but. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, you looking at this certainly gives me a, a new respect for like how tired my wife was, uh, like when it being able to put it in perspective of sport, right? Like, oh, if, you know, this is the equivalent energe- energetically of me running a marathon every day while you were pregnant, like, yeah, oh, and you were still going to work, right? Like, <laughs> wait a minute that okay i get it like that's yeah. uh, like i'm wiped in a four-hour endurance ride and that's every day for yeah now so do so do that every day for you know nine months like, yeah yeah exactly um so that's that's i think quite an interesting thing just to take away um for respect um for you know female yeah. athletes and the other thing i was you know thinking about this is like so there's a lot of like uh, paula radcliffe's one that comes to mind right the women's marathon world record holder trained a ton while she was pregnant so, so it may not, like, right? I think these women, these elite marathoners and elite athletes that train while they're pregnant actually break this, right? Hmm. Um, or push, they push it up a little bit. They certainly like move that curve of pregnancy a little bit up, right? Because if they're training yeah. and putting in some miles. So I was going to mention that, um, you know, I don't even, you know, I said this uh, during the hydration portion. I don't feel that uh, Tour de France riders are doing maximal efforts. We have to remember that. 
bike racing is about finishing first, not doing your best efforts. Mm-hmm. So even, you, you know, they didn't ask these bike riders to ride as hard as they could for 21 days. Um, so no. even that plot, that point on the plot is maybe not, um, you know, if, if you're looking at maximal capacity, maybe it's not the right. The right yeah. Right. Point. So, I mean, it's like, uh, for a few days in the mountains, the contenders are, you know, really throwing it down. Right. Yeah. Um, but not everybody all the time. Right. But on the flat first stages, the contenders are not throwing <laughs> down that sort of effort or like in the time trial, while you are exerting yourself maximally, it's very short. So on that day, right. The particular yeah, total, energy demand is, yeah. is quite a bit lower. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you, you could very easily though look at their kilojoules, right. And, and get that very precisely right, the number mm-hmm. that they're they're averaging across time and, and like, peak um, variance and everything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it, I do think it's interesting to think about if you are interested in any of these ultra-long events and you're, you know, sufficiently um, mathematically inclined, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, could, you can look at these things and you could be able to, probably with a decent degree of certainty, estimate what your performance might look like. I think that's kind of one of the fascinating things about cycling, right? Is more or less it's, it's so objective um, in that way. Like, yes, we've talked about this, the psychological factors, the nutritive factors, the other factors that go into your performance. But if you can control for that, those things, you can look at the numbers very objectively and you can start to project, um, like, what could you expect? What kind of pace should I set? Um, and, and start to adjust for like these very, I think, I don't know, I'm not that race across America is controlled, but like, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a known quantity, right? Yeah. So the one way to think about this is, um, say, you know, your event's going to be three and a half hours. Mm-hmm. You can plot on an X, Y curve of time on the X and energy expenditure on the Y, and you can put a dot at three and a half hours and the maximum amount of energy you can put out. And then if you draw a line between the origin and that point, you now have this, like, this line of if I if I go over this line I have to go under it somewhere because the final kilojoule consumption needs to be below that right at, uh, or, at the end at of the below day. that yeah point so um, that's one way to think about um, you know oh I'm in this breakaway and I'm way over this this theoretical line uh, I need to figure out how to back off if I want to stay in here because um, you know I have this absolute limit and I think this also applies to uh, Team Sky's strategy in the Tour de France and why they were so successful is they basically forced everyone right up to that line and then no one could attack because, uh, you know, you can't, you can't go over it, you yep. know, because you've, you've already budgeted the energy. Um, so, and so the, you know, the, the thing that makes inter- like tactics and attacks interesting is when you're sufficiently below that line in order to start to, you know, go over it a little bit and then come back and... Um, but at the end of the day, you're always flirting with that line of total yep. energy um, output. Yep, absolutely. And so I think the other interesting suggestion from this paper uh, that goes along with things I think we've talked about in the past is they said, well, like, what was the why, right? And they, they hypothesized that the why, like, why is this the limit is basically for the, and so part of it is like, well, you have to maintain your weight, right? Like if your weight drops too much, then you, you're going to run into trouble. Uh, but the why that they hypothesize is basically, um, you know, with simplifying 
it's the guts limiter like for a sustained period of time you can only process that you know x amount about two and a half x your bmr in calories and get it in and actually utilize it and process mm. it to provide energy to keep you moving forward um, and that's that's the limiter uh, it's not the muscles breaking down it's not this it's not that it's their their feeling from the you know the results they got in the study and the, looking at the other studies that have been published previously on similar topics was yeah you know what the guts limit you just like if you get more food in you get more calories in and actually process it then great it, that line might be higher right it might be three or three and a half but it seems to them from you know from their research that that was probably it like uh, the hmm. gut was probably the key limiting factor um, i didn't go back and try to like work out the math of what we've talked about like oh well is it 60 grams of carbs per hour like what what that would look like yeah um you know but i that seems like a reasonable hypothesis just to me because I, I, mean, I know when i've done like big back-to-back days um it's like you didn't feel like a chore sometimes right and you're like yeah i, re- I have a, a lot of trouble eating um especially the hotter it gets yeah for sure. and you're like okay well maybe you know that's part of the puzzle um and you know you think about like glycogen depletion right? like these people are probably depleting their glycogen basically almost every day and then yeah. trying to, to to fill it back up and uh the other thing i think about with this is sort of um tss right and like that kind of gives you an indication of like how far you've dipped into that tank on some levels uh, like how many carbohydrates you burned and and how like how much of a deficit that you may have created um so like thinking about that like i just i don't have a good you know way to translate it into um repetitive marathon running but it seems to me like you know you could start to think about it in that those terms right of well yeah i'm, I'm dipping pretty deep into the reserves and how do i now think about refueling that and at some point then yeah the gut could be a, a limiter in that mm-hmm. regard so i think that's interesting because something like race across america um you know why why isn't it uh well you know for me one limiter is um like functional movement like yeah. how do i maintain the quality of my pedal stroke um and you know maybe if you're lowering the intensity it's not as big of a deal mm-hmm. but um i think we've all had our long endurance rides where you know our lower back really hurts um and just as much as you know i think pregnancy's different because you're not as limited by that kind of stuff as much uh, you can be low back pain's pretty pretty common in yeah but pregnancy. um does it limit your energy expenditure probably not so like in, in uh you know what i'm saying is like oh i have back pain so i'm i have to drop off. the power yeah, or yeah. something um Whereas, you know, assuming everything else goes right, your hydration's fine, your mobility is fine, all this stuff, it's, you know, the, the claim is, yeah, you literally just can't get more energy in. Right. You're in just, the long term. Yeah, you, it's like, I, I think of these, um, like the military jets, like in air refueling, it's just like, there's no more, <laughs> no more other jet to refuel you anymore. Like it just, it can't happen. Like yeah. You, you got to land. Yeah. That's uh, interesting to think about. I know... On this topic, uh, Alex, not Alex Hutchinson, um, the British, uh, Michael Hutchinson. It's the same last name. That's why I got them mixed up. Uh, Michael Hutchinson is a uh, British national time trial champion, um, and he wrote a book on cycling called Faster. And in the book, he mentions that he could never get over 1,400 kilojoules per hour, ever, no matter what. 
and he's like big into time trialing so not so much the tactics and stuff like that just literally energy expenditure and you know he tried changing you know increasing fat metabolism he tried um you know lifting weights more all this stuff and just he couldn't figure out why he couldn't get over 1400 kilojoules but that was his limiter and he needs to be plotted on this. Uh, yeah, to see where he would yeah. on the short events. I wonder uh, how that map. If you know, if, if he's on the curve for that for an hour at fourteen hundred kilojoules, then that says, um, you know, you just hit. You know, you did it. You hit you the human. Limit. Um, well, isn't the the real thing right? Like the hour record, right? It's like we should plot, like Bradley Wilkins and uh, yeah. who, who just took it from him, uh, uh, Campanaire. Yeah, we should plot them on the on that curve and see like where, where they fit compared to yeah. other, you know, like other events that are that duration. And the other thing is, um, you know, like uh, Kip Chong, the world Re- marathon holder, mm-hmm. he had 115 grams of carbs per hour during his marathon of consumption. And the general dietetic recommendation is 90. Yeah. Well, it used to be 60. 60. Um, it used to be 60 and they realized if you had multiple types of sugar, you could get to 90. Um, but that's sustainable. That's like an Ironman sustainable is 90. You know, so if it's two hours, maybe your gut can get in a little more yep. for a shorter time. Um, but that's also thinking about metabolic endurance, um, something like that. The other interesting comment I have about this is um, the I remember reading an article about one of the winners, the, one of the solo winners of Race Across America, not mm-hmm. one of the teams. And he was like a bike messenger from somewhere in Europe. And uh, like talk about the perfect training. For uh, race across continuously America. riding, not yeah. necessarily fast, maybe some accelerations. Yeah, so um, I think they like even the it was a project to recruit him. You know, they were like, hmm, who can we find who can win? You know, I, like whoever the coach was, and they were like, oh, bike messengers are great options. Um, and you know, they said, you know, he basically got three or four hours of sleep a night for a week. It only took him a week to bike across the U.S. Um, <laughs> And, you know, he was like delirious at times, not sure, able to sure. speak and not really Just one, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Like, uh, I think at, at one point I was like a little disturbed by, you know, them basically saying he didn't really know where he was. And the, you know, his support team was like, it's, it's okay. Just get on the bike and uh, keep going. And, uh, yeah, that's like a little, it makes me a little uncomfortable, but, um, yeah, I'd like to get his power files. <laughs> see what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I bet it's less exciting than you think. I bet it's like <laughs> diesel engine sort of, uh, I'm sure. I wonder what his cadence was. I wonder what if he was like 70 cadence. I wouldn't be surprised actually. Yeah. Probably just a slow, slow grind, slow burn. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the other thing on this topic of, um, these were marathon runners who were pregnant, who were working out. Yeah, like the, um, the Paul Radcliffe's of the world, yes. Yeah, so one of my old teammates had a theory on, um, you know, he noted that a lot of uh, female athletes were getting really, really good results the year after um, having a child. Mm-hmm. And he, well, he called it baby doping, which um, I've actually received mixed um, responses to this, but... Basically, he was pretty convinced that, you know, there's a big uh, boost in hormones and um, other developmental stuff for the, the parent as well. Sure, um, sure. And so despite maybe decreased in training, um, you have such a, like, increased well, stimulus in the months following. There's also a massive boost in blood volume, um, right? When you're, because mm. you're 
you know, providing blood for a, another human being. Yeah. Um, and yeah, certainly like growth factors are, are increased because you're, mm. you know, again, like growing another human being. So all those things are happening there. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know enough beyond that. Like I know like the fundamentals, the basics of that, um, to really go into it at detail, but yeah, there's certain, there is certainly things, you know, physiologically happening that we would, you know, outside of that context we would look at and say like oh yeah those are definitely performance enhancers right Mm -hmm. like so like oh if you know you like if we both boosted our blood volume by you know half of what a pregnant woman sees be like that's that's good that would that would improve my performance right or if we had you know increased growth hormone levels circulating okay that's gonna increase my performance right that Mm -hmm. would be beneficial for me Um, so yeah there are there are some things that you would you could then say like theoretically that could yield a, an increase in performance um but yeah I, I think that's i don't know that's an interesting question yeah or is there like a psychological component right like childbirth is a very challenging process so does you know is there this psychological thing does everything just hurt less <laughs> right yeah or like a relative right like yeah. you know when we talk about the pain scale like oh well you know zero to ten zero is nothing and ten's the worst you know worst pain imaginable does giving birth change that ten right does yeah. that does and that brain re- chemistry and st- how does that stuff change right as well? does that redefine 10 for you and now you're like oh well that you know that pain that i get at the end of my interval that i thought was like a seven that's actually really like a three so i'm, I'm willing to push yeah. into that some more mm-hmm. yeah this stuff's so interesting and then you know i would counter that with um you know in a in a race you don't feel pain anyway um so then in training you know should you be pushing past seven anyway um, are mm-hmm. you just setting yourself up to be injured or um, unable to recover tomorrow or something? So uh, this is all to be balanced out, usually by the coach. I uh, I wonder these top athletes, if they have like a really dialed coach who's um, able to tell and, you know, adjust to these um, pretty finite, you know, the if you think about even for my training, the day-to-day, you know, I'm training low enough of a level that I can, you know, if I have a bad night's sleep or I have mm-hmm. one of these factors that could decrease training, I can usually still get through the workout. And yeah, it's not as fun. It hurts more. But um, I wonder if these people who are really pushing the top level, if they're so dialed that, uh, you know, even these small disturbances can, you know, dramatically affect their ability to complete their workouts. I mean, I would imagine, right, if you're, if you're pushing to that upper limit, right like you, you we know they're pushing pretty hard yeah you, even those i don't know I, I, there's all there's probably some room for error right there's probably always some wiggle room in the system but yeah i, I think the tolerances are probably pretty tight right at that mm-hmm. that upper level where for someone like you or me it's like oh yeah i can still i can still get that done like it's just like the the absolute load relative to what is you know physiologically possible at the limit yeah, is the, the delta there is much larger for you and me. Well, than even also like your threshold relative to your VO2 max is a greater gap for yep. amateurs. And also, um, you know, pros, you go home, you eat your food, you go to sleep. You sure. know, I, we, we have to work. To we work. have to, yeah. you know, have families or whatever. So we have to have our podcast. Yeah. I mean, this is a lot of work. Um, <laughs> so it's it's almost unrealistic for an amateur to, to get that close anyway. Sure, um, absolutely. Because it's inevitable that you'll have these inefficiencies. Yeah, and that, yeah, the things I think if an amateur is pushing that close, they're going to break down. Like they may be able to do it for a short period of time, but um, any prolonged period is going to lead to a, a breakdown, either an illness or an overuse injury or yep. something else. 
So unfortunately, we haven't been doing it since uh, since age eight or whatever right. when people start riding. Right. So. Okay. All all good. I don't th- I don't think I have anything else. I, th- I mean, this is a fascinating study, and we'll post it in the in the show notes uh, if people want to have a look at it and really kind of dig dig into it and and go off into the weeds and I don't know get their calculators out and model model their maximal performance. Um, but you know that aside, I think until until next time, as we always say. Uh, keep the rubber side down and hopefully uh, stay cool out there. Yeah, have some good rides.